0: Hi there, I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. The guests you typically hear in our episodes have stepped off stage to talk about faith, leadership and spirituality. Here's Joshua Johnson's final interview in our special series.
1: It's the Aspen Ideas To Go off stage series. I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A from WAMU and NPR. Imam Khaled Latif is New York University's first Muslim chaplain. He directs NYU's Islamic Center. He's also the chaplain for the New York City Police Department and was profiled in The Secret Life of Muslims, a digital series about Islamophobia. Imam Latif, welcome. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. How did you become NYU's first Muslim chaplain? Did you try to get the university to open that door? Did the university recruit you? How did that come about?
0: Uh, You know, it's a combination of both. I I started working at NYU in 2005 as their first Muslim chaplain. And then a year later, in 2006, I became the first Muslim chaplain at Princeton University. But right now in the country, in universities, there's probably about three dozen or so Muslim chaplains and subsequent Muslim chaplaincies, uh, where in comparison on university campuses, there's Hundreds of Hillels serving Jewish students, um, thousands of Protestant ministries, Catholic centers, Newman centers, a growing demographic of Hindu student centers, Buddhist student centers, Sikh student centers. And institutionally, as the Muslim community is growing, you see now a movement forward in the development of centers that cater to Muslim student life uh, as a means to really influence not just Muslim students on campus, but also serve as a resource for broadest campus culture, um, as there's just so much misinformation about Islam these days. What
1: do you think has contributed to the growth of Muslim chaplaincies and Muslim student centers? I naively think that it's the aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks that began to make some people say, we need to build more cultural bridges, but is it really that simple, or was there more to it? Uh, You know, I
0: think for many people, they conceptualize Islam to be something that's 500 miles away or 500 years in the past. Uh, Even in our country's historical legacy, uh, you know, 30% of slaves that were brought over during the transatlantic slave trade are Muslim. Um, The experience that Islam has in the country is as old as the country itself. And literally, one would say that the country was built on the back of Muslims, um, if we were to think about it in that frame. But the challenge is, most Muslim communities in the United States have been quite heavily marginalized also since the country's inception. So there's this large black community that exists kind of on the fringes of society, uh, given the way race, class, and ethnicity function in our country. Um, And at a time when our country was looking to enhance itself in fields like math and science, and it opened up immigration to a lot of countries where Muslims were... Uh, the predominant population, to let in doctors and engineers and scientists and academics, um, you still had a second demographic of Muslims that came as immigrants from countries abroad that also were essentially marginalized. Now what you see is a movement that allows for these two populations to deepen in terms of their institutional development and growth, um, where beyond just a simple mosque that you could find in pretty much any city in the country now, Uh, you find the development of advocacy groups, free health clinics, orphanages, domestic violence shelters. And so, to the establishment of the chaplaincy model uh, within the Muslim community and framework,
1: I think, is just a sign of institutional growth and community development. How are Muslim students at NYU doing these days, from your perspective? Do they feel like they're getting what they need from the university, from the community, or are there certain issues that tend to crop up over and over? Uh, You know, New York University
0: is great in terms of how it supports not just Muslim communities, but religious life on a whole. Uh, our university is not historically rooted in any specific faith tradition, and at a time when much of higher education is getting more deeper in terms of its own secularization, uh, NYU, in the last five to six years, uh, made a very deliberate decision to embrace spiritual and religious diversity on campus. And um, Being in Manhattan, real estate is you know just at a rarity. Uh, One of the last few pieces of real estate on the center of our campus, situated around a park called Washington Square Park, Uh, the university opened in 2012 a facility that it calls the Global Center for Academic and Spiritual Life, Um, to me being a testament to how it affirms religious identity and spiritual identity on its campus. That being said, even in a place as liberal as New York City, we still see a lot of harsh realities that... I wouldn't say people have with my community tied to elements of distinct theology or ritualistic practice. Uh, But to me, it comes back to those same elements of race and class that a lot of identities in the United States um, are seen through the prism of racialized identities. And there's times when I'm walking down on the street in Manhattan and I'm wearing a long robe and a turban and people will still ask me for directions uh, because I don't stand out. Um, In the West Village, I'm not the strangest thing walking on the street. Uh, But at the same time, we have instances in Manhattan where, especially in the aftermath of the recent presidential election, uh, there's in the last two years, statistically, some would say an increase of 900% in terms of hate crimes and bias incidents against Muslims. Uh, 900% since the election? Well, they're being reported, right? So we don't even have the best relationships with law enforcement in general. And I work for the NYPD. I can tell you minority communities and their engagement on every level, whether it's local, state, federal, um, becomes problematic, right? I've had the opportunity to meet people like Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama and engaged major media like Stephen Colbert and Katie Couric met President Obama and his senior staff a bunch of times. I've had the FBI in my house on numerous occasions. And when I asked them, you know, what is it that you really want from me? They've said, you're just too good to be true. You should know that we're watching you. And now you think about
1: that in the mindset of a student. The FBI told you you're too good to be true? Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Well, even in the Secret
0: Life of Muslims episode that you had referenced, what it looks at in like a quick three, four minute... um, video is just my experiences uh, as somebody who works for law enforcement and I'm still scrutinized heavily by existing federal law enforcement apparatus. Um, I wouldn't be surprised by that, but I think to be able to understand where much of the foundations of policy stem from tend to infringe on the basic rights of minorities in a lot of different ways. To me, a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia, whether that's day-to-day on the street, somebody saying, go back to your country, which I wouldn't even say is the biggest problem, it's a problem in and of itself, Um, but thinking about that on a much larger scale, on the systemic and structural levels, um, anti-Muslim sentiment to me uh, that exists structurally is just symptomatic of a more deeply rooted anti-blackness that the country is built upon. And where we've seen time and time again the relationship between minority, community, and governmental apparatus, um, even where narratives aren't necessarily told that often, uh, it's something that's there. And then the student mindset now, you're dealing with this from all different angles where you, know, you have this growing fear and anxiety and you have to live within a frame of identity um, that carries a double burden – where society has an expectation upon you as a Muslim that you are constantly having to react to its worst stereotypes, and at the same time, uh, you're in a space where you're trying to just mourn tragedy in the same ways, or live your life the way anybody else would live their life, but you're constantly in a space where you are
1: considered to be suspect before anything else. If I could follow up on the law enforcement piece of that, since you do also provide Muslim chaplaincy for the NYPD, how do you feel that law enforcement is doing in terms of building healthy relationships, solid, stable bridges to various communities of faith, including Islamic communities? I mean, I would like to think we've come at least some way in the last few years, but you see it more from the inside. How do you see it? Uh,
0: You know, I think it varies from city to city, and unfortunately, organizations and institutions, uh, even where they're meant to function off of principles of neutrality, are still heavily influenced by those who are in authority or have power themselves. Um, I was in Austin, Texas uh, a little bit after the presidential election, and I was meeting with a retired chief of the department of Austin. We were having lunch together, And he said to me that right now is one of the worst moments in our country's history that he can imagine. And this was a year and a half ago. And he said at that point, there were law enforcement agents on a federal level that had come in from ICE that on the most mundane of reasons were stopping people, had set up checkpoints throughout Austin. And if somebody had tinted windows on their car that would be enough of a reason to take them into a federal building and potentially even deport them. Uh, We've had a lot of traction back and forth in the court systems since that point, but that was in those initial days where it was just a rollout to kind of impact migrant communities. You try to understand where and how we find relationships with law enforcement agencies. Um, I would say objectively trying to understand the way most institutions develop, right? Like, when I worked at Princeton for a year, for example, it's an educational institution, one of the top universities in the world, uh, historically um, you know, recognized for just its amazing academic excellence. Uh, I was 24 when I started to work at Princeton. It was very interesting for me to be 24 at Princeton. My first week that I was there, you know, I'm meeting people like Cornell West and Toni Morrison, and here's a person who's responsible for the resurgence of China's economy and people like that, and I said, what am I doing at Princeton? Uh, and then a week later, I started to get letters from alumni that said, uh, we don't want Muslims at Princeton. You know, you don't belong at Princeton and you should never be here. Uh, We don't want sharia law at Princeton. One guy wrote a 400-page book and mailed it to me and said, this will explain to you why you should never be at this school. Read it so you understand.
1: He wrote a 400-page book just for you? No, a book he had written before. Okay, I was about to say, I thought you meant he wrote you 400 pages of why you shouldn't. That would be a whole other, wow.
0: And so when I tried to speak to administrators about it, um, they said that people had been confused because the head of religious life at the university um, was moving on into another role, and these alumni had assumed that they had hired me to be the dean of the chapel as opposed to the role that I was in, and I said, well, that makes it a lot worse. Um, That doesn't make me feel better. At the end of the year, um, like most universities, Princeton uh, hosts something that it calls its Pan-African Baccalaureate, And there was a young woman who spoke as a valedictorian there. It's essentially an unofficial graduation ceremony that minority students attend. um, In large part, young African-American students, but also, in addition to black students, some brown students will will attend. Um, And she said to her graduating class that, we should never forget what it took for us to get to a space like this and just because we are at princeton doesn't mean that we are of princeton and the struggles of generations that came before are things that we should carry with us so that we utilize our skills and degrees from here to further our community cause that really got reinforced for me when i witnessed around the same days an alumni parade that the university does uh, that they call the p-raid and they have alums from as far back as decades ago, marching with the most recent alums in Princeton, white and orange. Uh, There's a lot of kind of pomp and circumstance. And as you watch this parade, the oldest alums are in formation from the front uh, with the youngest kind of coming at the end. And for decades, it's just elderly white men. You might see a little bit of color here and there after you pass some time. There might be some women, but also by the end of it, it still tends to be just white males. Now, to think about that as an objective reality and to understand how it all lands in a place where people can tell me I don't belong in a place or where there's still minority students who are hosting their own graduation ceremonies telling people that we have to leverage this space for our community's growth, institutionally, many apparatus in this country weren't necessarily built with a mindset of diversity the way that we see the country to be diverse today. And we're dealing with a lot of challenges in government, in law enforcement, in education, etc. Because people had a very specific archetype of who it was that policies would cater to.
1: We're speaking to Imam Khaled Latif, the first Muslim chaplain at NYU and also a Muslim chaplain for the NYPD. He directs NYU's Islamic Center, and he was profiled in the digital series, The Secret Life of Muslims. Imam Latif, I imagine that some of the interfaith work that you do hopefully helps to break some of those barriers down. Where are you seeing progress, at least in the work that you do, in interfaith work? Are there certain kinds of connections that are proving the most fruitful or that are opening people's eyes?
0: Yeah, you know, interfaith, I think, is a key component to being able to dismantle a lot of the inequities that we see taking place today. It also has the caveat that it can be very ceremonial and superficial, and it depends on really what the end goal and objective is of it. To me, the purpose of good religion is not the practice of religion in and of itself as it being an ends but a means to something. And if that religion, whether you're practicing it solely for yourself or you're coming together as diverse faith communities spiritual communities uh, to build some type of understanding harmony coalition is not yielding a mechanism that takes on society's biggest ills then it's not really practicing religion for its main purpose in my opinion. That Religion isn't meant to be about self service or feeding kind of one's ego, um, but it's about to be able to look at things through the prism of what they really are and to be able to understand how your faith, your values, encourages you to be a catalyst for the bringing together of benefit in communities that you're situated in. And I think today you see that many more people who uh, are becoming really woke to realities that have existed for quite some time. And they're now coming together on principles that are not a uniformity of the external, shared race, shared class, etc., but a uniformity of the internal, shared values, shared hearts. And you see movement now where people are understanding that it requires uh, real strategy um, as distinct and diverse communities. And a first step within that, I think, is moving to a place where Allyship is really understood that people are hopefully getting to a point where they understand that they're not coming in as a savior for minority population, but they're taking their cues from that demographic that has struggled and understanding and learning from them how they can be interjected into a strategy Uh, and then moving forward in a way where they see ideas of mutual respect, understanding, compassion, um, real love as being the catalyst for uh, bringing change in the face of some of these things.
1: How do you begin to build those bridges? I've seen different efforts, interfaith, intercultural efforts, some of which focus on saying, okay, let's get together to talk about these big issues that we face to give people a chance to kind of get their questions out. Others are kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a culture fair, like let's kind of put our culture on display and we can share our food and we can play our music and you can see the garb that we wear from our culture and we can just kind of have a a cultural fair. And others are aimed at saying, let's just go bowling. (laughs) Let's do something that has nothing to do with any of our cultures or any of our faiths. Let's just hang out as people. And then maybe later we talk about faith and culture and politics and all the thorny stuff. Three different approaches. I've seen them all work in their different ways. What do you see that works?
0: I think it depends. I think all of them could work so long as there's a consciousness of what it is doing more broadly. Um, You don't want interfaith to be something that kind of whitewashes realities that people experience because it can be very tokenizing that says, well, we're sitting down and talking to each other. That must mean that that's the sole reason as to why these other oppressions and inequities are taking place, those people don't really talk to each other that well. And we have a a challenge here, right? But I think the idea that you come together as diverse populations to learn from each other, the story of the other from them, as opposed to this kind of constant bombardment of media that we have and cyclical imagery that's just kind of thrown at us day in and day out that makes us very emotionally reactive and not so present and mindful in how it is that we move forward. Innately, if we were to look at just how we function and cognitively how we function, uh, we function through the prism of stereotypes quite often and it makes it easier for us to store information and to not have to think and process as hard. But within that, we don't live in a vacuum. For whatever reason, we also just innately are willing to discriminate against people to whatever extent that we possibly can. There's a man by the name of Henry Tadgefell Uh, who was a Polish Jew. And Henry Tajfel lived at a time when many Jewish people weren't allowed to go to universities throughout Europe, Uh, so he ended up going to a university in France. And as people came and started to take his friends and family members away to concentration camps, Henry Tajfel got to a place where he avoided that for some time because he could speak French, right? And the French-speaking authorities that came to take him Didn't take him because he could speak French, right? We exaggerate similarities as much as we exaggerate differences. Eventually, they took him as well, uh, and he survived the concentration camps. Um, But many people that he knew and loved did not. And when he left, he wrestled with this question of not only how is genocide possible in the sense that People can perpetrate that kind of hate against a specific demographic, but how is it possible that the world sees it happen and they're not doing anything about it? Uh, So he builds out a paradigm that he calls uh, the majority group paradigm. And within that, he gathers together demographics from distinct backgrounds at random, and he finds that even at the most subtle distinction people will discriminate against each other even if they have just simply different eye color that'll be enough for them to discriminate and why it's important to know who the people are that we are reading their studies their works their opinions is because we don't want to read just ourselves into this work like this man survived hate in its worst form ever he lived through the extinction of our Jewish brothers and sisters, and that's what he's wrestling with when he's trying to understand what humanity is possibly able to do. And so we are in a space today where we consistently see these kinds of things happening, right? I just came from the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, um, where there is ethnic cleansing and genocide taking place, um, in the country of Myanmar. and Most of the world has no idea. It's arguably one of the worst humanitarian crises, if not the worst, in our world right now, right? It's happening. Rwanda happened. Darfur happened, right? Bosnia happened. And when we say it wouldn't happen, they're still happening, and we're kind of trying to figure out how some of those things could, could function.
1: How much of your work as a chaplain, particularly with students, has to do with helping students deal with these political and cultural times, as opposed to just the basic fundaments of Islam. I mean, are you is your work primarily helping students just navigate life, or do you still have a decent balance of students who just come with purely theological questions?
0: Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's either or. I would say it's both end. But religion, theology, spirituality it's you know, it's a evolutionary process, right? In terms of what its function is in society and to not just kind of throw abstract kind of ritual and law and text at people um, that says that it's not dynamic because it is dynamic, right? We unfortunately are not in a place where we are just shut off from the rest of the world, and Muslim students, especially with intersections of their own identity, um, have to carry like a lot of different things when they come with them, right? I have students who are literally refugees from Syria, who are trying to understand why people think about them in the way that they do, especially as they've lost loved ones. I have Muslim students who are Latino and African-American, and they wonder why their Islam is constantly delegitimized by broader apparatus, because whenever you turn on the TV, it's usually not somebody who's a black Muslim that's speaking on behalf of Islam, even though Islam has been in this country within the African-American experience for so long. Um, And then people are just dealing with their everyday issues, relationship issues, wellness issues, job security, finances, but it comes with the added element of the uniqueness of their being Muslim as a racialized identity. Like we have statistics that show that Muslims who have Muslim sounding names, whatever that means, right? And anything about Islam on their resumes, the same exact resume as somebody else, if not better, are less likely to get a job hire because of where they're coming from. Um, And it's not to say that that's unique amongst minority experience, um, but it does also happen to Muslims as well. I talk to a lot of people who go through just real serious things in their life, survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, people wrestling with depression, anxiety, mental wellness, mental illness, Um, homelessness, poverty, et cetera. Um, And the idea is to be able to say, well, how do we deal not only within the framework of equity but in the framework of reality where we understand what is negative but we don't dismiss the negative by looking just for the positive but we make the positive a means of enhancing contentment for us and start to have a sense of self that comes from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in. Because so much of the way society functions today is about looking at yourself rather than looking for yourself. It's about, especially as a student, adding one more line to your resume and putting on another perspective of who it is that you are Um In a facade as opposed to really making yourself vulnerable and saying that I have challenges, I have struggles, I have issues, and I just need people to to lean on.
1: Before I let you go, Imam, I wonder for people who hear this, who are trying to build their own interfaith bridges, regardless of what the bridge is to or from or why the bridge needs to be built what would you say is the one biggest thing that you've learned to do or maybe to avoid in terms of trying to build those bridges, especially if they're really, really, really new?
0: I think the best thing to do is to just learn how to listen and listen actively. You know, a lot of us listen with the hope of replying or responding as opposed to listening with the intent to just understand. And empathy is not that, I relate to you in such a way where I now say something I've experienced is so similar to you that I can be dismissive of your realities because some of us see certain things that the rest of us will never see. And some of us will go through certain things that other people will just never have to go through in their lives. And to be able to respect that and honor that so that we can understand how we fit in to a solution and remedy to make things as equitable as possible, right? Like I'm not worried that anybody's going to ever take my five-year-old daughter away from me or my two-year-old son away from me. But every morning when I wake up, I have to deal with the reality that somebody might take me away from them. And that's something that I don't say in a victimized way, but in a way that understands that if you just listen to what that feels like and recognize the humanization isn't just about us. Using an entry point as an end that says, we have shared holidays, we have shared services, we do this, we do that, but we have shared humanity, you know, and we have to understand when we look in a blanket of intellectual laziness that is stereotypes, or we assume that we know of the other already without ever having really even interacted with them then we're just as complicit in some of the problems that we see as the ones who are actively holding down our brothers and sisters from distinct walks of life around us every day.
1: Imam Khaled Latif, NYU's Muslim chaplain, also Muslim chaplain for the NYPD. He served on Mayor Bill de Blasio's transition team and on the city's Combat Hate Task Force, and he co-teaches a course on multi-faith leadership at NYU. Imam Latif, thanks for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A, a national news program produced by WAMU Public Radio in Washington, distributed by NPR. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow at Aspen Ideas all year round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening.